the moment, I'm going to read our passage of scripture for this morning's sermon. But at first, I want to introduce our guest preacher this morning, Dr. Steneric Armitage and his family. Thank you for joining us this morning and blessing us by proclaiming the word. Sten is a associate pastor of pastoral ministries and spiritual formation at Dallas Theological Seminary. As you know, our church has a long historical connection from the very founding days of our church to the seminary. Uh, Sten is a personal friend and has figured importantly in my own journey into ministry and through seminary, and he's preached here before. So thank you so much, all of you, for being here today. Uh, we're blessed. So this morning I'm going to read as, as the passage from Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 12, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they all do their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Let me start us off with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your word that we just heard read by Mike this morning. We thank you for the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, who softens our hearts so we might be able to hear the things that our minds and our wills and our affections are not yet ready to hear. So I do pray this morning as we look at a text that is challenging and one that I know I don't want to hear, that the Spirit would enable me to get out of the way so that his word might work powerfully in our hearts. So I commit this time to you, Heavenly Father, in the name of the precious Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this passage, let's just jump right into it, is part of a longer setup. And this is, this is going to be some deep stuff I'm about to put out there. So if you have your Bibles with you, you might want to open up to Matthew 23. If you have a pen and a piece of paper, what I'm about to say will change your life. Immediately before and after the passage that Mike just read for us is more stuff. You with me here? 
This 12 verses that he just read follow something and are followed by something else. And I want to just do a quick greatest hits of what it's followed by. So in chapter 23, looking at verse 13, we see Jesus speaking very strongly. I would say as strong as he's ever spoken in the Gospel of Matthew about a specific group of people. So, verse 13, and I'm going to be jumping around here. But woe to you. That that word woe, this is Jesus operating in his role as prophet. Prophets announced woes. They were statements of judgment and grief spoken over a group. And here he is to the Pharisees, the scribes, the spiritual leaders. Woe to you, hypocrites. You know, kind, affirming words. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single convert, and when they become a convert, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. And I could go on. I recommend you read these seven woes that Jesus spoke, not about the Pharisees and the scribes in general. I want to make that clear. But about this specific group of Pharisees and scribes that he was encountering in that day, in those moments. Harsh words. And I don't know about you, when I've heard Matthew 23 read and taught and preached in the past, I kind of got a little edgy, and then I would hear it, and I'd listen, and I'd go, oh, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not a scribe. He's not talking to me. He's talking to them. Yeah, bring it, Jesus. You, you tell him what's up. Here's the problem. I mentioned that that follows the passage that Mike read for us. There's also something before. And this is that beautiful moment where he challenges the Sad Jesus challenges the Sadducees and their idea of resurrection. And then the Pharisees come in and they're trying to trip Jesus up. And he says, hey, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And you know how this goes. The greatest commandment, the Pharisees answer rightly, is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and your mind. And then Jesus said, there's another one. What's the second one? To love your neighbor as yourself. This beautiful moment of we can't understand what it is to love God vertically if we don't understand how it is to live out in light of that love horizontally and vice versa. One isn't greater than the other. They are together. And then he asked them a question. So what do you say about the Christ? Uh, who, who is he? Oh, he's the son of David. We know that. We've studied this. He's the son of David. How does then David call his son Lord in the Psalms? This is a paraphrase, Stenaric edition. And then we have that wonderful line in verse 22. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Check and mate. And that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 23. Now, when you think of the Middle East and the Near East, the first thing that comes to your mind probably isn't a bastion of Christian orthodoxy. We talk about missionaries who need to stay 
hidden as far as their identity and purpose when they are there because their lives would be in danger because Christianity is not safe there. Yet, when we look back at church history, that's exactly what the Near East and the Middle East was. It was the bastion of Christian orthodoxy. It was Constantinople, now Istanbul, was the seat of Eastern orthodoxy. The Hagia Sophia, this this amazing church, one of the oldest churches that we have continually moving through its predecessors on the same ground in the late 4th century this church started. And it continued through until in the late medieval period it was, for a time, the largest Christian church in the world, the Hagia Sophia. So what happened? We don't have near enough time to talk about what happened. But we know that in this late medieval period, there was the rise of Islam, and that was in that region. And so it was seeking to supplant that which was Christian, that which was the gospel. Well, that shouldn't happen. You know, Satan cannot prevail against the truth of God's word. So what did happen? Well, when we look at the church in that late medieval period, something was changing. The way that worship occurred was changing. When I first heard this, it was from a missions prophet, DTS, Dr. Steve Strauss, uh, who's no longer with us, he's with the Lord, uh, but an amazing man and scholar and missionary. And he talked about this migration of worship. And it got to the point that if you went to the Hagia Sophia, you would walk in and then you would be stopped. And you would be able to hear the worship that was going inside, going on inside by the religious leaders. The Eucharist, communion, celebrated by the priests and the bishops on behalf of the people. But the people weren't permitted to participate in them themselves. So the actual sanctuary was off limits to us. It was the church leaders who were doing it. And they were engaging in theological debates and they were fighting over issue one and issue two. And I'm thankful for that because we've learned much through that. But they lost sight of what it is to be a shepherd to the sheep. And over time, all through the Near East and the Middle East, Christians stopped trying because the leaders wouldn't let them in. This passage seems like we should be able to wipe our brow and go, well, that's not me. I'm not a bishop in the Eastern Orthodox tradition in the late medieval period, nor am I a Pharisee or a scribe, so I can sit here, eat my popcorn, and go, yeah, yeah, Jesus, bring it. Verse 23, or chapter 23, verse 1, Then Jesus said, then, so that means following chapter 22, verse 46, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the consensus based on the flow of these chapters from 22 to 23 to the Olivet Discourse in 24 is that the scribes and the Pharisees, after Jesus calls them out at the end of chapter 22, they're like, we, 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 we're, not, we're not messing with this. We're done. We're not going to ask any more questions. We are leaving. And so Jesus is now talking to the crowd and to his disciples. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the crowds are a favorable audience from whence more disciples might come. So these woes that he's tossing out at the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not in the room. The ones that he's targeting specifically, they're likely not there. He's speaking maybe to the scribes and the Pharisees who haven't jumped the shark yet, 
He's talking to the crowds who are interested in his teaching. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to us. Because the dangers that we read about in those woes are dangers every single one of us faces. This, this is a hard teaching because we don't think of ourselves. We want to think of the first century scribes and Pharisees as the big bads of the New Testament text. No, no, they're a mirror. They are a mirror of our idolatrous hearts. They show us the worst of us. And we need to be humble enough to recognize that. So the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. What does that mean? Most scholars, and I agree, they don't, there wasn't a, a chair in the temple. There wasn't a piece of furniture called, this is Moses' seat. No, it's speaking about a position of authority. So just as when uh, Mike was reading earlier from Malachi, we all stood to read, to hear the word of God read over us. When the Pharisees and the scribes were standing and speaking, they were speaking with the authority of the Torah. And then they would sit. They would come down below that position. And there was a piece of furniture that they may have been sitting on, but we also think that the scrolls rested upon it. And they would come below it to now talk about what they just read, what I'm doing right now, the preaching. Up here, I'm reading from the Torah. I'm reading from the scriptures. This is where it comes from. Down here, I'm sitting on the seat of Moses as one who is teaching and explaining what's going on. Now, this is significant because of what he says that seems strange. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Doesn't that kind of feel strange when we've kind of miscast Pharisees and scribes universally as the big bads of the New Testament? Wait, I'm supposed to listen to them and learn from them? We need to remember, the scribes in particular, they were the most learned folks in the world when it came to Torah teaching. They knew it backwards and forwards. And so Jesus is effectively saying, hey, when they're talking about the Torah, listen. They know this stuff. Listen and learn from them. But, and this is where the rubber meets the road, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So they're reading the Torah. They're teaching truth. Listen to that. They're saying some solid stuff. You need to listen. But their lives are the example of exactly what you don't want to follow. Now, these men, particularly the scribes, like I said, they know the Torah. There are 613 laws in the Hebrew Scriptures. 613. The majority of them are do-nots. About 280 are do's. So there's a lot of do-nots. And here's what the Pharisees did and the scribes to help the people. All right, so it says you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're supposed to cease on the Sabbath. So, cease. Stop. And here's how we're going to help you do that. Here's a list of 147 things to protect you from accidentally violating Sabbath-keeping. 
So we're helping you. They're building a gate around the law, a fence around the law. So if you obey the fence, you're fine. You won't violate the law. So here's the thing. The scribes, what is their life? Their life is studying the Torah, studying the teaching of the teachers. This is their life. What's the life of the fisherman? What's the life of the shepherd? What's the life of the tax collector? It's the rest of us. We have jobs. We have responsibilities. We, we don't have time to spend 11 hours a day studying the scriptures in detail to understand the finer nuances. So this thing that Jesus is saying about the Pharisees, he's not saying, the Pharisees are telling you how you're supposed to live your life, but they won't do it themselves. No, they did. The Pharisees and scribes were very good at keeping the law. They knew not just the 613, they knew the fences around it. It's not that they were hypocritical in not keeping the law. Their hypocrisy was, you and I, we don't know how to do what they're talking about. So they are given, the people are given this incredible, poorly tied up burden to carry. I mean, you can picture that, a nice rucksack that is packed well and clipped in front and tight on the shoulders, you you can carry that 80 pounds, in theory, for quite some time. But a poorly packed rucksack with stuff kind of dangling all over, it's not tight, it's not cinched properly, you're done in a matter of minutes. Y'all follow me? And Jesus is describing that rucksack, the poorly packed rucksack. We're giving you the law, but we're not telling you how to live into it faithfully because you should just know. Because we do. They had it much easier because they knew the nuances. The people didn't. And so the people were suffering under the weight of the law and the people weren't caring. Here's why this is important for us to reflect on as non-Pharisaical Christians today. There's two things I want to highlight in this text as we move into communion a little bit. The first one is we're called to bear one another's burdens. It's not an option. Uh, We go to James and we see that this is the picture of the faithful disciple. We are bearing one another's burdens. We shoulder the load with one another. And here the Pharisees, uh, just like the poor shepherds in Ezekiel 34 who were failing at their job, they are abusing their people by not doing what they need to be doing and instead letting people suffer under the weight of what they're putting upon them. We need to be men and women who are willing to bear one another's burdens. This This is hard. Because burdens are uncomfortable. I did some research into small group dynamics, exciting stuff, I know. And one of the things that breaks apart a small group is tragedy within the small group. It's strange, because in that moment of the tragedy occurring, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, some incredible financial disaster, whatever it might be, the group comes around that person, and they care for them, and the food train begins. We're really good at food trains, aren't we? The food train begins. But six months later, those who didn't experience the loss personally are becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the reality of the way ache of the one who has experienced the loss. And we love them and we care for them and we supported them, but man, we need to move on as a small group. You don't get to move on from the loss of a spouse or a child. You don't get to move on The the grief remains. It changes over time, but it remains. 
And so small groups often, they come together in tragedy, and then they're uncomfortable with the persistence of pain. We're called to bear one another's burdens. How? There's so many things that we could do and talk about in the ways that we could do this, but I want to highlight one. And that is the, the, the discipline, the practice of being present. There's a significant difference between being there and being present. Uh, I had lunch with someone earlier this week, and, and if you're listening, it's not you, it's somebody else. Um, <laughs> I had lunch with someone this week, and their, their phone was on top of the table, and it was doing what phones do, and that person was drawn to the phone regularly. And I, hey, we're really not connecting here, you know? We're having a conversation, it's good, but it's not presence. You're not all in. I've done the same thing. I'm no saint in this matter. I have to discipline myself to put my phone face down, away from me and not on the table, so that it's not something to distract from my eyes on the person across from me. Practicing presence, being fully there, listening, you know how rare it is to be heard today? In this age where we're driven to distraction, to actually sit and hear what the person is saying? We need to recover this lost spiritual discipline of listening well, practicing presence. Let me read you a quote from New Testament theologian and scholar uh, Gordon Fee on the idea of what presence is. Presence is a delicious word because it points to one of our truly great gifts. Nothing else can take the place of presence. Not gifts, not telephone calls, not pictures, not mementos, nothing. Ask the person who has lost a lifelong mate what they miss the most. The answer is invariably presence. When we are ill, we don't need soothing words nearly as much as we need loved ones to be present. What makes shared life Games, walks, concerts, outings, and a myriad of other things so pleasurable. Presence. So a way that we can start to bear one another's burdens is to intentionally make time to be fully present with the men and women sitting in the pews around you. And I'm sure this is happening in some context within the church, but as you look at one another this morning, as you go into the fellowship hall for the life-changing donuts after the service, are there donuts? for the donuts after the service. (laughs) Praise God for the common grace of donuts. Ask yourself a question. Do I know them? Do Do they know me? What would it look like to be intentional to carve out some time and say, hey, let's get together, not to talk about the game, not to talk about economics or politics, but to learn to know what God has been doing and is doing in our lives and listen. Don't listen for your turn to talk. Listen and learn and grow in your understanding and thereby your affection and compassion for the other. And then your time will come. Practice presence. Then, when somebody is burdened, you're able to enter in because you know them and you know the situation. The Pharisees were not doing this. They were burdening, not relieving burden. They weren't doing life together. They were speaking above. Let's move on. Verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. What? So the phylacteries were a literal interpretation of the Old Testament exhortation to bind the word of God, the law of God, this this principle, the great Shema, 
upon your forehead and upon your arms. And so when they say the phylactery is broad, traditionally, uh, these are little leather boxes and there was a scroll inside containing this text. And it would be a small little rectangle or square that you would strap to your head and that you would strap to your arms. If you're flying out of Newark, you're going to see people wearing phylacteries and praying their prayers regularly. So it all fits inside that little square. But many would make that phylactery broad, big, because we're not writing the text small, we're writing it big because we take it seriously. So it is an outward expression of how holy and amazing they are. Their fringes, long. So the prayer shawl, Jesus wore a prayer shawl, we know he does from the text of Matthew. It's a garment that you would wear, and it would have fringes that come down, small little tassels. And those tassels would have knots on them. And similar to how a Catholic will use a rosary to remind themselves where they are in their, their Aves or their Our Fathers, uh, the faithful Jews would be able to remind themselves, hit the right number of knots as they're saying the prayers in Scripture. Nothing wrong with this. It's a good mnemonic device. But the tassel's long. I picture going to the, the garment district in Dallas and going to the overpriced curtain shop where they have those huge tassels hanging off of the ornamental. You know, look at the size of my tassels. How holy must I be? I don't just pray. I pray with style. Right? Do, you, do you see what Jesus is getting at here? You're overemphasizing the external signs of your holiness because you want people to think you're really, really holy. We don't do that, do we? I'll come back to that in a second because it's entirely too convicting. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. (laughs) Pride is a universal struggle. Every single one of us struggles with pride. And that's what's being described here. So I'm guessing most of us in this room probably don't wear phylacteries. We, we likely don't have prayer shawls with tassels where people at uh, Trinity Fellowship go, oh, wow, that's an impressive tassel. They must pray really intensely. That, that's not what we do. What do we do? I was teaching a class on the spiritual disciplines a few years ago, and there was a student there, and I was talking about reading Scripture for formation, reading Scripture not for information but for formation. And he was sharing his discipline. And he said, I, I, I have a discipline of my quiet time. That's the, uh, the evangelical spiritual discipline of choice, quiet time. Uh, where I spend 40 minutes every morning in the Word. And I have main, maintained this for over 700 days without a break. And this came up a couple of times in the course of the class. And so when it came time to talk about what discipline are we going to practice to reflect on for the purpose of your final paper... Um, I encouraged him to embrace one spiritual discipline and to stop another. So I want you to stop. I want you to stop reading your Bible. That sounds like heresy, doesn't it? Because I suspect that your unbroken streak of seven hundred plus days of quiet time has become more important than the time spent in the text and being shaped by the Spirit, so that you might look more like Jesus for the glory of God. I think it's about the fact that I'm almost eight hundred. I want you to practice the spiritual discipline of breaking your streak so that you can have humility and not pride to this life-giving thing. Uh, you know, I've, I've not missed, I'm not suggesting you miss a Sunday. 
I've not missed a Sunday in years. I've been here for corporate worship uninterrupted for years. Good for you. Are you more proud of that? Or are you coming to corporate worship so that you might join together with your brothers and sisters in Christ for worship, not for being the keeper of the perfect attendance record? I want to suggest to you that every single one of us in this room, especially the guy talking behind the podium this morning, is a hypocrite. We are the scribes and the Pharisees. And we take that which is beautiful and we reduce it to something that's offensive. Because it's no longer about our hearts growing in affections for Jesus. It's more about, look at me. I've been an elder for this many terms. I've been a deacon at four churches. I've memorized three quarters of the New Testament. All of these things are beautiful things. But they become idols that distract us from worship if we don't continually embrace the humility that Jesus is going to give us here at the end. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I believe that this is an end times promise, but it's also a present reality. We need to be men and women who embrace the humility of Christ in the way that we live our lives. That we would be those who are characterized by service to one another for the glory of God rather than sanctimonious spirituality to impress others and distract them from God. Where's the glory going? This is a hard teaching. And I want to give it to you that this idea of humility when it comes to the practice of your spirituality, recognizing that the gospel is true. I believe that we all believe that the gospel is true, but the problem is, I know for me, I often don't live like I think it is. I think that my works are more important than the truth of what Jesus has done on my behalf. No, my work should be an overflow as a response of love and obedience for what he has done, as opposed to, I need to do these things to be a better Christian. We need to ask ourselves some hard questions. And I want to point us briefly back to the nature of the scribe and the Pharisee's burden. This poorly tied burden that they're saddling the people with that they won't lift one finger to help them with. I don't want you to turn there if you have your Bibles. But I'm going to read from the teaching of Jesus earlier in this book of Matthew. Something that is very familiar to you. But I want you to listen to it. And as I'm reading this passage... I want you to ask the question, what might the Holy Spirit be prompting in my life right now in regards to what I have emphasized in my life other than him? Have I made a burden out of the practice of my faith and not a joy? At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, are you carrying a heavy yoke, a burden that is difficult, rather than yoking yourself with Christ? It doesn't mean that life will be rainbows and puppies and cookies. But the burden, when we recognize who our salvation depends upon of Christ, it's easy. He is the great teacher. When we take his yoke upon us, we are walking alongside the one who teaches, shapes, and points us to what is right and holy. There's nothing we can do that will make that happen in our own lives apart from submission to the Holy Spirit as we seek to be yoked alongside Christ for the glory of the Father. This this is the call. Stop trying to become more holy. Stop holding others to standards that go above and beyond what Scripture asks. Christ is sufficient. Should we read our Bible? Amen. Should we pray? Amen. Should we serve one another? Absolutely. Does that make us righteous? Does that save us? Does that make God love us more? No. Christ is sufficient. Love one another. Practice presence. Exercise humility.